0: Welcome to Overlooked, a podcast produced by Tunuka Media. My name is Yemi, and I will be your host for the show. Released weekly, I share Overlooked stories from around the world with you. This will include the good, the bad, the weird, and sometimes the absolutely hilarious. Come back often, share with your friends, and feel free to add the podcast to your regular podcast rotation, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect on social media. Just search for Tunuka Media. That is T-U-N-U-K-A Media. If you learn something new, kindly support the show. Give Overlooked a like or a high rating. This would really help the show grow and get more people like you to learn something new. Finally, if you come across stories or articles that you think should be featured here, please don't hesitate to share them. Now, it's time for this week's episode. Hello, folks. Did you know that there is an abandoned village in Turkey? It is called Burj al-Baba's. And it has hundreds of Disney-style castles just built and abandoned, essentially because the builder went bankrupt. It is in a village that is between Istanbul and Ankara, and it cost almost $200 million to build. I personally think it's kind of creepy, because when you look at the pictures, it is a contrast between really pretty Disney-style castles all bunched together, and then you also have them looking really abandoned. I do think it's somewhere I would go for like a spooky night's walk or a night out, but it really looks weird, especially now that it's pretty much dilapidated. Anyway, let me know what you guys think about these fun facts because I do read quite a bit in putting and pulling stories together. Um, Some of them I don't think are big enough to put in an actual episode as a full story. But I think they're fun. So yeah, let me know if you like it. And I will keep on putting fun facts in or around the episode as I go. Especially if I find something that I think is just kind of, you know, fun. All right, folks, welcome back, and it's now time for this week's episode. Our first story is from India. A few weeks ago, on episode 12 of the season, I covered mika mining and the dark side of makeup. To recap, about 60% of the world's production of mika originates in India in two of its most impoverished states. Mika is used a lot in makeup to make it shiny, but a bulk of it is mined under very slave like conditions. Now that you're all cut up, let's go in. A former child miner, Niraj Murmu, who is now 21, set up a school to save children from child mining. In recognition for creating and sustaining positive change, Niraj has now been given a prestigious Diana Award, set up to recognize young adults who have given back to their communities. The 2020 Diana Award is instituted in the memory of the late Princess of Wales and it has the support of the late Princess's two sons. Through his efforts, Niraj has enabled 200 underprivileged children in his village to get education and has rescued 20 child laborers from maker mining and enrolled them in his school. Under his leadership, many socio-economic issues related to his village have been addressed. These issues include rescuing or withdrawing children involved in work and enrolling them in school, hand pump installation and repair, facilitating electricity in his village for household, and providing cooking gas connections through linking with government schemes. Although it is still illegal for children under 18 to work in India, families that live in extreme poverty tend to rely on their children to bring in the extra income. Children as young as five are then forced to work in maker mines, with several deaths of minors reported in recent years. Congratulations, Niraj, Very well deserved. You are an inspiration to each and every one of us. Hopping over to London, the Lloyds of London Insurance Markets has apologised for its role in the 18th and 19th century Atlantic slave trade and has also agreed to fund charities and organisations that promote opportunities for black and ethnic minority groups. Lloyds has also said that it would review its organization's artefacts to ensure that they are not racist. The market began in Lloyd's Coffee House, owned by Edward Lloyd sometime in 1686 on Tower Street in the City of London. Lloyd's was a popular place for sailors, merchants, and ship owners to get marine insurance. This included marinas that were involved in the slave trade. So Lloyd's, like other insurance companies of its time, insured slaves and slave ships and essentially had a monopoly on maritime insurance related to the slave trade, which it maintained until early 19th century. The triangle trade involved shipping manufactured goods to Western Africa and then exchanging them for human beings, who were then transported in appalling conditions to the Caribbean and sold as slaves to work on plantations. Although Britain abolished the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, Full abolition did not follow for another generation. According to Richard Drayton, Professor of Imperial History at King's College London, Britain became the principal slaving nation of the modern world, with the City of London providing the finance to facilitate trade with the plantation colonies. Uncomfortable probing questions are now being asked of the institutions that profited from the trade in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement that began in the U.S. and has now crossed over to the Atlantic. These have prompted the re-examination of the role of prominent figures with sometimes contradictory histories in London, but also in the merchantile cities of Liverpool, Bristol, and Glasgow. I originally learned about Monsanto when the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or CBC did a documentary called The Monsanto Papers, Roundup and the Canadian Connection last year. That's 2019. It is available on YouTube. In the video, the CBC explored the claims and lawsuits against Monsanto that its popular weed killer called Roundup may cause cancer. The World Health Organization's Agency for Research on Cancer had announced that Roundup's prime ingredient, called glyphosate, was probably carcinogenic to humans. The video by the CBC also explored practices by the company to defend glyphosate. Bayer, the German chemical and pharmaceutical giant, bought both Monsanto, the company, along with Roundup, in 2018 for about $63 billion US billion. Now, Bayer has announced a plan to pay more than 10 billion U.S. dollars to settle approximately 125,000 lawsuits in the U.S. related to its product Roundup as well as pending class action lawsuits. Bayer has repeatedly defended the safety of the weed killer and pointed to studies that show that glyphosate is safe but apparently has now decided to settle the litigation rather than take its chances in American courts. Bayer has said that it will continue selling Roundup and does not plan to add a cancel warning label to the product. Nonetheless, the German government last year approved a ban on glyphosate beginning in 2023. One of the issues that were raised during the coverage by CDC was the fact that glyphosate was sprayed on grasses without proper warning or indication for how to best cover up and prevent it from getting on your body. So if Bayer is not still going to put the warning label, I wonder what kind of warning or label they're going to put on it. Because right now they're already settling lawsuits, but by not putting a cancel label or such warning on it, they're essentially setting themselves up for future litigation. Bosnia marked the 25th anniversary of the Srebrenica Massacre on July 11. The Srebrenica Massacre is the only crime in Europe since World War II that has been declared a genocide. Only a small number of survivors were allowed to take part in the events due to social distancing and the coronavirus pandemic. On July 11, 1995, Bosnian Serb units captured the town of Srebrenica in Bosnia-Herzegovina. In less than two weeks, their forces systematically murdered more than 8,000 Bosniaks, or Bosnia Muslims, the worst act of mass killing on European soil since the end of World War II. And in addition to the killings, more than 20,000 civilians, including women and children, were expelled from the area in a process known as ethnic cleansing. The massacre is the only episode in Bosnia's 1992-95 war to be defined as a genocide by two UN courts. After murdering thousands of Srebrenica Muslims in an attempt to hide the crime, Serbs then dumped their bodies in numerous graves scattered throughout eastern Bosnia. In July 95, tens of thousands of Bosnian Muslims had fled a Bosnian Serb army offensive. They were under siege in Srebrenica, an area that had been declared a UN safe zone, and they were protected by 60 lightly armed UN personnel. On the 6th of July, the Bosnian Serb army began to advance and eventually took some peacekeepers hostage. Within days, they had entered Srebrenica. The Bosnian Serb army then demanded that the Bosnian Muslim fighters lay down their arms in exchange for safety. They then took aside men between 12 and 77 for what they said would be interrogations. The first killings began two days later. The killing of 8,000 boys and men took place in under 10 days. Serbia has apologized for what it said was a crime but still refuses to acknowledge that it was a genocide. 25 years on, victims are still being found in mass graves and identified through DNA analysis. Close to 7,000 victims have been found and identified. Newly identified victims are buried each year on July 11th. This year, nine were buried. Dozens of world leaders, including Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Spain's Pedro Sanchez, UN's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Britain's Prince Charles, have addressed the commemoration ceremony via pre-recorded messages. there is now an artificial cartilage that may just be strong enough to work in the knees. Scientists have been trying to develop an artificial substitute for natural knee cartilage that can be used in joints such as the knees rather than invasive knee surgery. And I think a lot of the athletes are going to appreciate this. The goal has been to make a biological substance that has the properties of a soft cushion, but is a tough enough barrier to keep the leg joints from injury. Now, led by Ben Wiley and Ken Gull of Duke University, a group of researchers have now said that they created an experimental gel that's the first to match the strength and durability of the real flame. The material may look like a distant cousin of jello, which it is, but it's incredibly strong. It's 60% water, but a single quarter sized disc can bear the weight of a 100 pound kettle ball without tearing or losing shape. The hydrogel passed with top marks in the categories of stretching and squishing and showed better performance than other existing hydrogels. According to researchers, it could take up to three years before this new hydrogel can be approved for use in humans. Reading this reminds me of pushing and pulling, you know, slime. I'm not sure how familiar you are with slime, but it's really slimy. (laughs) But yeah, this reminds me of slime. Even though it's not, it's more like a distant cousin of Jello, apparently. But it's not edible. Or is it? Hmm. In Italy, hi Italy! Doctors have successfully separated conjoined twins. In the first for the country, the operation took place on two-year-old twins, Irvina and Pravina, at a hospital in Rome. Irvina and Pravina were conjoined in the head with their skulls fused back to back. They also shared blood vessels. The risk of infection is still present and the girls will have to wear protective helmets for a few months, but after a rehabilitation phase it is expected that the twins will go on to live normal lives. The twins' condition is known as Total Posterior Cranifagus. In layman's terms, it just means the skulls were fused back to back. This made surgery particularly challenging due to the shared network of blood vessels that bring blood from the girls' brains to their hearts. There have been successful separation surgeries in the past of twins joined in the head, but most have been for twins whose heads were fused vertically at the top, not in the back. Three operations progressively reconstructed two independent venous systems, said the hospital. In the final operation, the bones of the shared skulls were divided, and then surgeons reconstructed the membrane covering the two brains and recreated the skin lining over the new skulls. Wow, this is just wow. The 18-hour operation took place at the Vertican-owned Pediatric Hospital in Rome on June the 5th and involved 30 doctors and nurses. Honestly, this is just awesome and uplifting news. I thought it was a wonderful way to round out our episode for this week. So please remember to be kind to yourself and other people around you. All right, take care of yourselves and catch you next week. Thanks for listening, friends. As a reminder, the podcast is released weekly. Subscribe or follow across social media to be notified when a new episode is released. Overlooked is a Tunuka Media production, which also includes shows like Africa in My Kitchen, with more on the way. Follow Tunuka Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to connect to say hi, or to be on the forefront of upcoming shows and program schedules. Until next time, I'm your host, Yemi, wishing you a better tomorrow.